And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tilleth the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thy be in the earth. The empire never ended. That one sentence appears over and over again in his exegesis. It has become his tagline. Originally, the sentence had been revealed to him in a great dream. In the dream, he again was a child, searching dusty used bookstores for rare old science fiction magazines, in particular, Astoundings. In the dream, he had looked through countless tattered issues, stacks upon stacks, for the priceless serial entitled The Empire Never Ended. If he could just find it and read it, he would know everything. That had been the burden of the dream. Prior to that, during the interval in which he had experienced the two-world superimposition, when he had seen not only California, USA of 1974, but also ancient Rome, he had discerned within the superimposition a gestalt shared by both space-time continua, their common element, a black iron prison. This is what the dream referred to as the Empire. He knew it because upon seeing the Black Iron Prison, he had recognized it. Everyone dwelt in it without realizing it. The Black Iron Prison was their world. The Empire never ended. Entry number 41. The Empire is the institution. It's the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes its insanity on us by violence. The Empire never ended. Entry number 42. To fight the empire is to be infected by its derangement. This is a paradox. Whoever defeats a segment of the empire becomes the empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. Thereby, it becomes its enemies. Yet a physician has come to us a number of times under a number of names. But we are not yet healed. The Empire identified him and injected him. This time, he will kill the Empire by phagocytosis. The Empire never ended. The man told me that they were dropping me from the program because I was neither physically nor mentally fit for long-term space travel. I begged him to give me a chance, promising that I would work very hard, but he looked sad while telling me that it was impossible. He added that I was remembering too much and that I might tell the secrets to the people who shouldn't know about the program. So now, I'm telling the secrets. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 12th day of May, 
and this is our 184th broadcast. Before we begin, Will and I need to sincerely apologize for all of our mince pronunciations last week with Benabel. Feng Shui Yi Ching. Feng Shui Yi Ching. Oh well, live and learn. <laughs> all right, tell me, Morgan, who have we got in the kitchen with us today? Well, Philip K. Dick once wrote to his mother that Tessa was the worst cook I have ever met. Of course, his cooking was even worse. Tessa has overcome this problem and developed ways of even the most kitchen challenged among us to make tasty dishes that will please everyone. She offers these secrets in her latest book, a cookbook for the kitchen challenged by the kitchen challenged published this past March and of which we'll link to in the show notes. Mrs. Dick, the fifth and final wife of science fiction author, Philip K. Dick has been publishing her creative writing since 1969. She is the author of several memoirs as well as award-winning collections of short stories and poems, which she published while earning her master's degree in English. Uh, her novel, Fallen Angel, was published in 2013 after retiring from teaching English and communications at Chapman University for 12 years. This is Tessa's second appearance on our program, while we first met her in the summer of 2013 on episode number 94. It's an honor and a pleasure to have her back. Welcome, Tessa. Thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you. Um, and thanks for having me back. You bet. You already covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't talked about the secret of cold slaw. Oh, well, that was a recipe I got from Dad's second wife. Uh, I introduced them after I was married, so she's not my stepmother. Huh. Um, <laughs> anyway, Nita really makes amazing meals. I never knew that food could taste so good because Mom was even more kitchen challenged than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's just start there then. Um, where where did you grow up, and you know where where was this mother that you're talking about? Where did you where was she making these kitchen challenge meals for you? Well, uh, I was born in Culver City, around the corner from MGM Studios, but after uh, the August riots in Watts. Uh, we moved to Anaheim in 1965, so I spent more time in Orange County than L.A. County. Mm, California but born and bred, then. I could walk to Disneyland, and at the time, children could get in for 2 or $3, but you had to have tickets for the rides. And and people would give us the cheap tickets because they didn't want to go on the Monsanto microscope and that sort of thing. <laughs> that, that was before we knew how evil Monsanto really is. Hmm. <laughs> right. I think they're the new IG Farben. You know, IG Farben made gas for the Nazi concentration camp. And Monsanto makes gas for everyone, and they call it Roundup. Hmm. The empire changes its name, but it never goes away. Yes. 
so yes. yeah, and let's let's just touch on the idea of empire. So we we really spoke to that in the introduction. And one of the reasons why is because last fall, uh, the program spent a whole month on Valis, and when I first experienced Valis, I had uh, I experienced it completely as literature. I had no idea that there was any basis for that in reality. I just thought it was this wonderful, interesting story with with a uh, it was it was so oh I just I don't even know how to express in words how fresh it was this perspective. And then the deeper I got into that story, the more I realized that actually it had a basis in realities. Could you uh, – what, what is your relationship to that work both as a piece of fiction and as a part of your lived experience? Well, you need to understand first that it's a novelization and does not stick strictly to uh, the facts of what happened. But actually, several of his novels uh, were simply rewrites of the same one because his agent kept telling him, I can't sell this. And now (laughs) those books like The Transmigration of Bishop Timothy Archer and uh, I always blank on it. Is it Divine Invasion? Yeah, The Divine Invasion. They were all originally called Firebright, and then they were all called Valis, and now they all have their own title. Mm-hmm. The I, way I, Phil worked out the meaning of his experience was by writing these novels and his exegesis. I wonder, though, I mean, because I would consider myself a conspiracy theorist, and I think by saying that I entertain different points of view of fact. And I like to read Radio Free Albemuth because I kind of feel like, of course, that's just one of the several writings. I mean, uh, Radio Free and Vallis are practically the same story. However, in Radio Free, there's a part where the friends of the American people kidnap Phil and kill his friend Nick, who is, of course, like horse lover fat later. But I wonder... In that book, like I say, when they kidnap Phil, they tell him, we're going to kill you and just keep writing books out under your name. And I always get this little conspiracy side of me that perhaps that's exactly what happened. I mean, I see. How do you feel about that? Do you entertain that? Well, it happened to him before I met him. That's why he fled to Canada for some time, several months. But he ran out of money, and uh, he was kidnapped in Canada and almost died. So he came back to uh, down to Fullerton, a college town in Orange County, because uh, Professor McNelly at the university um, invited him and said they'd find him a place to stay and so forth. You know, why run to another country if they're still going to get you? <laughs> but so, as far as the idea of Valis as a novelization of an event that happened, it's my understanding that you were there for the beginning of that? Is that correct? Oh, for his mystical experience, yes. And And so... 
how does the his his fictional telling of that story differ from the reality that you experienced? Um, well, it's exaggerated and embellished, and you know he had to tell a good story if he just laid out the facts. It, it wouldn't um, it wouldn't play very well. No. And oh, the- by the way, the movie of Radio Free Albumless is is really good, despite or maybe because of the low budget. They couldn't uh, make fancy special effects, so they had to tell a good story. That's always been interesting to me. So I'm kind of a Vallis man, but it seems like Will leans more towards Radio Free Albumless, and like he mentioned, they're they're both. Oh. N- but I would here's how I would qualify that. I would say that Vallis is more of a literary telling of the thing, whereas Radio Free Albemuth has kind of a it's ominous and dark and it it really infuses the tale with this paranoid 1970s kind of darkness. I wonder how Phil- it makes it makes me wonder is what it does because Vallis is all it's kind of Vallis ends on a downer but it's a very uplifting story it means that there's like hope and that all of the messages that he's seeing are coming from you know god talking to him and radio free is like the empire beats him kills his friend you know what i mean like it's just it's just a, it's definitely a downer but it makes you wonder i mean the popularity is the popularity after philip k dick's death manufactured like it's hollywood just putting out the junk like it says in radio free well it the ending is a uh reminds me of the three stigmata of palmer eldridge at the end he says well we're doing pretty well when you consider that we're just flesh and blood we're only human and and the point is that the people keep fighting they don't accept defeat well see i think that i think that the phillips stuff for me is a good experience even like um it's it's funny because my wife i don't really i can't haven't been able to really teach her about philip k dick she doesn't know or read him but i come in every night and she's got adjustment bureau recorded and she just plays it because she likes the story it's a she's got some of her favorite actors in it and things and I think that it's a good experience. Like that is a product of Philip K. Dick's kind of mindset, but it's also a very good storytelling. I haven't read it. I wonder the differences between it. I've heard individuals even come forth and say that they thought that it was made intentionally not to be like Philip K. Dick's story. And Phil, they mentioned also that Philip K. Dick's story, I don't know, I haven't checked this, of course, but had something to do with the World Trade Center and things of that nature, and that it was intentionally took took out. So, I mean, my mind's always wondering. I don't remember the reference to the World Trade Center, but his story begins with a dog who forgets to bark. Animals, pets and and, uh, farm animals, play a significant role in his stories that uh, we don't give them the respect and care that they deserve. 
and anyway, because the dog failed to bark, the man missed his bus, was late to work, and saw the adjustment team rearranging his office while all the people were kind of frozen, not moving. Hmm. And that, that began with a real experience. And this also was before I met him, but he talked about it. He and his wife, um, I think Nancy, had gone out to the movies. And when they came home, he opened the door and reached for the light switch, and it wasn't there. His uh, house had a chain that you pulled. It was the ceiling lamp, lamp had a chain for a switch. Right. And rather than concluding that he had forgotten this, he concluded that someone had changed it while they were out. It's funny because when he proposed that we're living in a computer hologram, I think he was pretty equally ridiculed at that point in time. But now a lot of people are really entertaining that as a plausible reality for the nature of the universe that that this is and it's funny because i think the matrix even stole that idea from him as far as when when something changes in the in the in the virtual reality we experience it at as deja vu uh-huh and uh the uh makers of the matrix did say that they were in Fired by Phil's body of work. Oh, apparently, yeah, obvious. <laughs> That's kind of the way of saying, yeah, uh, we stole it and we're not paying for it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they stole everything, though. The the Matrix is a hodgepodge. However, I like to think of I like to think of actors who play in Philip K. Dick movies as playing like Philip K. Dick. Like somehow all of his characters are him in a way. And I like to watch The Matrix and think about uh, Scanner Darkly because ah. they're both Keanu. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's in a way it bleeds through from one movie to the next. Yeah. Um, Keanu Reeves is good, but... Um, oh, of course I'm blanking on the name. The, mean, the movie next. Oh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, he he's more like a Philip K. Dick <laughs> character. He, he's not a pretty boy like Tom Cruise. He's not uh, uh, an Olympic athlete like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. He he's just an ordinary man with this talent. Of course, it's nothing like the, his story, The Golden Man. That gives me a lot to think about. Yeah. Well, those characters were ordinary men. I'm not talking about the women here. But the, <laughs> the ordinary men who had extraordinary experiences. The women, apparently, were all um, insane uh, witches. 
how does that what do you feel about that i mean you were giving doug a hard time at the beginning about him saying that he had a baby <laughs> and we all know that the woman does all the work but i mean how do you feel about the arguments that are out there about uh phil's depiction of females and then I, of course how he overcomes that in transmigration but well his mystical experience focused on women good women I like Sophia holy wisdom and I think his experience throughout his life uh, was that he felt helpless in relationships with women he, he certainly had a strange relationship with his mother Dorothy and when I met her it became obvious that although she was a very nice lady, she was not uh, emotionally equipped to, to be Phil's mother. Mm. She was very <laughs> English, very English, cold and reserved. And Phil had a great need for, for warmth and cuddling and things that she just was not equipped to do. And And now that I think about it, I can't recall... The story of Phil's father, either. It seems like that is not uh, a character that's present in any of the in the stories at all. Well, I can see the father figure in some of the characters. They're not fathers in the stories, but they're role models. But um, Dorothy moved across the country with Phil. Uh, when Phil was about two or three years old, just packed up and left. And uh, Edgar, his name was Joseph Edgar Dick, but everyone called him Edgar, uh, had no clue about why she did that. He just kind of left him. And, uh, well, when I met Edgar, it was like seeing Phil in an older body and no beard, but they were amazingly similar. What What about Christopher? Does he have his father's uh, characteristics and personality on well, some level? He does look a lot like his father, but he's much more emotionally healthy. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's thing. had a... I hope he's had a better life, but he, he he's writing a novel himself. So he is a writer. Hoping, That's good. Hoping he finishes it soon, but it, it's a very dark and frightening story, very much like something his father would have written about the Empire. Great, yeah. Yeah. Well, well I'm, I noticed in your opening you read from... Genesis about Cain and Abel. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, you know, I still wonder where Cain found a wife, and I'm not satisfied <laughs> with the standard answers. <laughs> well, the thing that interests me at this point is the idea of empire, and I just recently have been reading this book, a historical look at uh, it's a what is it called? A history of violence through religion and. It, it kind of states that 
the idea of empire, as Phil really articulated it, began right there. When we started uh, agriculture, we needed to exploit people, you know, you know, because there's so much work to do, and it's not fun, and it's easier to just, you know, hunt and gather. That when we settled down like that, it really created this the system that we're just so familiar with now today where some people are exploited and other people have free time to dream up culture and music and art. Well, I think you've got it backwards. Okay. It was the rise of the city that made agriculture necessary. So um, in order to support these cities where people did not produce food, they had to have an underclass working on large farms owned by the king or other noble. And so slavery began without calling it that. It was kind of like sharecropping. Yes. Yes. And so, and this empire, it, it goes on. And so the world that Phil spells out in Radio Free Albemuth is kind of the world of our nightly news. I wonder, I wonder how he would react to the news of the day. Have you thought about that? Oh, all the time. Uh, I think he, on the one hand, be saying I was right, and on the other hand, he'd be saying I wish I'd been wrong. Yeah. But then another interesting thing is the hero of Jesus that he kind of puts forth is another thing that I've read about where on some level Paul, the Apostle Paul, retrofitted Jesus to fit in the Roman Empire so that they could use him as a, maybe not so nefarious, but to make Jesus work in that system, you had to change his message, whereas Jesus wasn't compromising kind of the the hero that Phil was using to destroy the Black Iron Prison was more of that that revolutionary that Jesus was uncompromising, you know, turning the tables over in the in the temple. Yeah, he he whipped the bankers and drove them out of his house. Yeah. And we should do that today. Was I think it was I no, Sweden or Iceland yeah, I think it was Sweden. It's early in the morning. I can't think straight. <laughs> Actually, threw the bankers in jail. Oh, interesting. Recently. And their economy is booming. Anyway, um, you know, first, you know, Shakespeare said first you kill all the lawyers, and he did not mean attorneys. That was what they called politicians. <laughs> and that's how you create a utopia. You get rid of politicians. <laughs> so one thing our listeners may not be aware of is that, you know, you weren't just Phil's wife. You're also a writer. You you helped, you collaborated on A Scanner Darkly and played a large hand in editing that work. Um if our listeners wanted an introduction to your work, it, could you talk about your writing a little bit? Well, um, gee, I was uh, 
writing a little of everything. I'd had some poetry published. My my first publication was an article about photography. And uh, most of what I wanted to write was fantasies involving animals that talk and the pets who own their humans. But um, I I had no idea who Phil was when I met him. He wasn't well-known, and I wasn't really into science fiction. But boy, did that ever change. First thing he did was hand me uh, one of his books to read. It was the novel that eventually became Blade Runner. What was it like reading him for the first time? I really enjoyed the book. and. Um, I I could agree with most of what he had to say about our society. My own background was that um, in Culver City, when I was young, my parents joined the Birch Society, and there were all these people visiting in the evening after dinner. (laughs) And, of course, I was sent to my room, but I just sat by the door and listened to all the conspiracy theories they were talking about. And the biggest one, of course, was who really killed Kennedy. And that obsessed people as well. We all knew it wasn't Oswald. And where are you at with that today? Well, when you look at all the evidence, and forget the Zapruder film, it's fake. Even the so-called real Zapruder film is fake. But when you look at it all, you have to conclude that they all had a hand in it. Every suspect is guilty. That's interesting. So, I mean, overall, do you think that it was CIA controlled, perhaps? I think perhaps the CIA allowed LBJ to believe he was in charge of it. But very soon after they... Sorry, I hit the mute button. Very soon after the assassination, they let LBJ know that he was not in charge. They say that he went insane after he became president. Well, I mean, I imagine the act of doing that alone would make you paranoid to be president. (laughs) I mean, if you could do it to the president before you, you're always probably looking behind your back, seeing who's going to do it to you. Yep. And then when Nixon came along and wouldn't play ball with them, they figured they couldn't get away with another um, assassination. So they um, invented Watergate, and Nixon was just a fool enough to try to cover it up. He wasn't a great president anyway, but uh, he was set up, and he took the bait. Where are you at with 9-11? Oh, well, the planes did hit the buildings, but that's not what took them down. And if you were paying attention on that day, they said that uh, Building 5, which was not hit by planes, contained sensitive CIA files. So, of course, they demolished that building. They couldn't allow a bunch of civilian firefighters and police to go in there and see what they had. Speaking of dark political realities, have you seen the TV 
version of Man in the High Castle that recently came out. It's a pilot, I think. I did see the pilot. Can't afford to subscribe to the whole series right now. I don't, I don't know if they've made the whole series yet, but I think they are planning on making it. Did you Did you like it? Did, what What did you think of that? Oh, yeah. Um, I've heard many complaints from people. Uh, I don't remember characters' names, but the uh, man driving the truck across country who they let on too soon that he's really a Nazi. Ah, uh, yeah. But I thought it was pretty good. Uh, oh, and another complaint is that they have, um, ah, geez, forgot that name too, the woman doing Aikido, and that's the wrong martial art, and she doesn't do it right. <laughs> well, then, that that's something. What Of all Phil's works... Which ones are your favorites? Which ones do you think that they still resonate with you so many years after? Well, uh, the one I like best is The Unteleported Man. It's one of his early novels, and it's been uh, widely ignored. Yeah. And you can see the theme there long before his experiences in the 70s that the authorities promise us a new life and prosperity and all that and it turns out to be slavery hmm. when the people get to the new colony at whale's mouth they're you know disillusioned <laughs> they're put into slavery slave labor and that's pretty much what we have now do you have much hope for the future? As long as people keep waking up and standing up, we can at the least delay it and perhaps turn it around. Our, our history is filled with revolutions of one kind or another. Um, the French Revolution was taken over by bloodthirsty savages. The Russian Revolution was taken over by Bolsheviks. The American Revolution was taken over by the English bankers who were really German. The Rothschilds, they're not even Jewish. They want you to think they are, but their real name is Bauer, and no Jew would have the name Bauer. Bauer means farmer. And Jews were not allowed to do farming. That's why they had to do banking and uh, all kinds of retail trade. Right. But, uh, the Rothschilds, like the Kennedys, are a huge family with many cousins who are, um, although wealthy, not in the top echelon. And they're all fighting among themselves now, fighting for position like a bunch of chickens in the yard. They have to have a pecking order. And as long as they fight among themselves, we have a chance. Yeah, but we're so busy fighting amongst ourselves, too. Yeah. Like oh, and by the way, I don't do penance for what the um, Jesuits and Franciscans did in medieval Europe. People seem to think that uh, 
Christians are a bunch of, um, you know, inquisitors going around, you know, torturing and killing people who don't buy the party line. And I just keep thinking about the empire. I think that the, I don't know if we implanted that in here intentionally, but it seems like we can. That's all we're talking about. Have yeah. you guys seen that? Oh. Have you guys seen that Minority Report's coming out? I I mentioned because Minority Report to me seems so uh, insightful of the whole idea of uh, terrorism today and and creating um, what's the word I'm looking for domestic terrorist the whole idea of domestic terrorist or anybody who's conspiracy theory being crazy and being hunted down as like a, a, a being oh, yeah. in society in the 60s people talked about a vast right wing conspiracy and it was not considered a wacko theory but now <laughs> Man, if you think the government lies, you're a conspiracy theorist. Jeez. Uh, right. You know, I've had to just um, settle for, yeah, I might be insane, but don't ever think I'm stupid. <laughs> well, <laughs> these are definitely the things that drag us down. Now let's as we run out of time, talk about the things that nourish us. Why Why did you write a cookbook? Well, it just seemed like the right time to do it. I had always wanted to write a cookbook, but I'm really a lousy cook. So <laughs> once told his mother I was the worst cook he ever met, and I suppose that was true. But I can make a few things that are edible and even tasty. So what is the secret of coleslaw? Do, do, are we oh. going to make them buy the book to get the secret, or do you want to share the secret of coleslaw on the, on the show here? Well, I'll give you a hint. You don't just pour some mayonnaise into shredded cabbage. <laughs> Damn, that's what, there goes my recipe. <laughs> well, that's what most restaurants do. They just shred some cabbage and, and mix in a little mayonnaise and vinegar and sugar. You're supposed to put in the sugar, a little salt, and a little vinegar and let the juices of the cabbage weep out so you have a nice sauce. And that way it's lower in calories because you don't need as much mayonnaise and it tastes a whole lot better. Oh, the other thing restaurants often do, by the way, oh, it's too dried, so they pour in more vinegar and you end up with the sauerkraut. <laughs> yes. So I got one more question for you before we're done here. What are you going to do next? What do you have planned? Well, time flies when you're having fun. Next? Uh, well, I'm trying to work out the sequel to Fallen Angels. The original novel is based on the uh, theory that's re-emerging, which is that our asteroid belt is the remains of an exploded planet. At one time, it was the accepted theory, and now they say, oh, no, it, it's just a planet that never formed. But I 
wanted to explore what happened to the survivors of that exploding planet. Where did they go? What did they do? So I had them come to Earth and take refuge here. And then they meet the first man. So in the sequel, uh, they get to interact with humans. And they look a lot like us, but they're not identical. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. You bet. To our listeners, you've been listening to Tessa B. Dick on Sinkbook Radio, a production of thesinkbook.com. Information about the work of Dick can be found on her website, tessadick.com. And that's where the matrix cut out. Tessa B. Dick, or tessadick.blogspot.com. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. We have one coming up on the 18th, so it's not too late to become a member. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and the Buddha is in the park. Siddhartha sleeps, but is going to awaken. The time you have waited for has come. Our demand is simple. Stop killing us.
schedule programming to bring you up to date on a developing situation in Los Angeles.